Hi, friends. Join us as we dive into the themes, metaphors, and foreshadowing of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. With both a spoiler and spoiler-free analysis, there's something here for everyone. We are your hosts, Leah, Sarah, Tabby, and whether you're a new viewer or a longtime fan, welcome to Becoming Buffy. And welcome to this week's episode of our podcast, Faith, Hope, and Trick, which is finally when we start getting into the juicy stuff of the season. We have some new faces that we get to talk about. I'm stoked. Yeah, this is a meaty episode. I was sitting there and I was like, oh my goodness. There is a lot that happens in this episode. And like Leah said, a lot of new characters are introduced, but just a lot of really cool, like, I feel like growth on Buffy's part, growth on some of the other characters' parts, and then, yeah, just a lot of moving parts. So, yeah. And we meet Faith. Like, what in the world? I think it's crazy, too, because, like, this episode is one of those episodes where I really feel like even when you don't know spoilers, you can tell that this episode is setting up a lot. I mean, obviously, we know spoilers. So when we're watching this back, we're like, oh, my gosh, this is happening and this is happening. And I remember the first time Faith was introduced, I remember being like, She's going to be important. Her entrance is just so bold that you're like – In your face, yeah. Yeah, in your Mm -hmm. face. Thank you. That it's something where it's like there's no way that this girl is going to be like another Kendra and just kind of fall off the face of the earth. Like she's going to make an impact. With Faith, you come in and then they throw all of these like underlying issues, meaty conversations – I guess like visible acting you can see of like inward thoughts that you're like, oh, there's a lot to this girl and they're setting it up immediately. So there's quite a few interactions that I'm excited to talk about just because I feel like it really, especially as the first time like viewer, I can't even understand like what they would even be thinking. But me knowing what's going to happen, looking back and be like, oh, shoot, they're already going there immediately. Like that's nuts. So it'll be fun to talk about. I think for me, I've realized that I don't remember much about this episode with the exception of Faith arriving. I th- I feel like Faith's arrival is such a huge deal, but there's so many other big things that happen this episode that are equally as important. And I realized that I feel like I can forgive Dead Man's Party a little bit for the fact that it doesn't focus as much on Buffy's trauma because I think that what the writers were trying to do was separate out Buffy's trauma versus the Scoobies. And so I think Dead Men's Party was supposed to be the Scoobies airing out their grievances to Buffy. This episode is supposed to be Buffy moving on working through a few things and actually being heard out by Giles and Willow with her trauma. It's not perfect. It's not how I would have handled it, but I think it helps lessen the blow a little bit of Dead Men's Party to recognize that Buffy actually gets to be heard a little bit. And so I'm kind of glad that they saved it for one specific episode, you know? That's a good point because I think if they try to squeeze that into Dead Men's Party when everyone's like super aflamed, I think that I'd be really upset Because I'm like, if no one's listening to her and they're just wanting to be heard, and that's all we get for Buffy trying to go through her trauma, I think that'd be really frustrating. So I'm glad that kind of like what Sarah's saying, I like that trauma itself is being shown in different ways in this episode, Um, Yeah, which we'll we'll dig into when we get to specific scenes. But I think that it's – I'm excited to – without giving anything away, I'm just excited to see the mirroring of Faith and Buffy. Um, especially since like 
we've seen what Buffy's gone through and we haven't seen what Faith has gone through. So I think it'll be really interesting to see their dynamic and see how they go about certain things. Yeah, the contrast is very clear between Faith and Kendra and Buffy and such, but I think it's just so interesting to note how they set up for Faith to arrive. I mean, we don't know very much about Faith, but it's very clear that she's disturbed, got some issues, got some trauma because of her watcher. But then also, like, her mom is dead. Like, she talks about her dead mother. So I think this girl comes from a very rough life. You know, she can barely pay for her motel. And I think it's no accident that we've come from Anne just two episodes before. And I think they're trying to show that both Buffy and Faith have trauma, that Buffy can actually relate to Faith, even though Faith doesn't feel like she can at this point. No, I, I agree. I actually, re-watching it this time, I think I had a lot more of a softness for Faith than I ever had before, just because we did go so far into dissecting Buffy and Anne and then Buffy in Empty Places last week. She's just someone who's been through a lot of pain, just like Buffy has. Yeah. It's no coincidence that Faith arrives so early after Anne and on the episode that Buffy is working through trauma and pain. It's just very interesting. I Like you said, Leah, I've always seen the contrast between Faith and Buffy, but I haven't really seen a lot of the parallels as much. And so I'm excited to kind of dig into that and talk about that. So season three. Episode three, Faith, Hope, and Trick, written by David Greenwalt, directed by James A. Contner, and it aired October 13th, 1998. So I'm going to be just a forewarning for you guys. There's going to be a lot of quotes, a lot of behind the scenes facts, a lot of other stuff, just because there's a lot of stuff that happens in this episode. So bear with me. Hopefully it will all be interesting. So first of all, James A. Contner, the director, he started out in television as a cameraman shooting for Miami Vice, then directing on Crime Story. He also did a lot of 21 Jump Street, the the TV show. His first episode that he directed was Bewitched, Bothered, and Bewildered in season two. We all remember that one. He says this about directing for Buffy. I was very flattered because what appeals to me on this show is that the writing is very unique to television. There is a cadence to it, and it has its own dialogue, which took me a while to figure out because I'm not of that younger generation. We're always looking for unusual and different angles in order to shoot. The nice thing about the show, which also appeals to me, is when I first started, it sort of had an old-fashioned style. Joss wasn't demanding that we had to shoot everything in close up. He loves very wide angles. So we try to get a really good wide shot that is interesting. And we move the camera a lot on the show, which a lot of shows do. He talks about the prep work he does when he gets a script, which this is insane. I didn't realize that directors do so much. He said, I first read through it a couple of times. I break it down each scene, figure out what props I need, what special set dressing, what effects we need to do in that scene. I do pretty much the basic general stuff because immediately we have to get all those different departments working on putting those elements together. Then we scout the locations. We pick the locations. We take all the department heads out there. And then once all the nuts and bolts are taken care of, I start working on the emotional parts of the scene. You know what the actors need to be doing, what emotions they need to be telling the audience or giving the audience in any particular moment, how they're relating and what they're feeling. What is the story they are telling in that particular scene? When asked what a full plate is for a director, he says, because there are 22 episodes and a director can only do every other episode because he has to have prep time and then shoot, figure 11 shows a season, which is what I'm doing. I could do 11 and then maybe a pilot or maybe a movie of the week if I wanted to work without stopping at all. (laughs) That is a lot. I thought it was interesting when he was talking about how a director can only do every other episode because of all of the prep work. And we know that it takes 
roughly about 10 to 14 days to shoot each episode. So you're thinking that while the episode's being shot, there's another director that's doing all the prep work, someone who's doing all the props, the costuming, all this other stuff for the next episode. And the actors, as soon as they're done filming, get the script for the next one. And like, that's just insanity. And you do that for 22 episodes. During the weekend, you're also learning choreography and then memorizing the new lines, trying to have somewhat of a normal life and get some sleep, go on some dates. Like it's just nuts. All right. And so before we jump into talking about Faith a ton, I wanted to talk about Eliza Dushku because obviously very big actor and or actress and just does a phenomenal job as Faith. So Eliza Dushku was a child actress. Um, she starred with Jamie Lee Curtis and Arnold Schwarzenegger as their daughter in True Lies. She was on This Boy's Life with Leonardo DiCaprio and Robert De Niro. And then her grades were starting to not do super great. And so her parents were like, hey, we're going to have you quit and go back to school. So she took a couple of year break. I think it was like two years break to finish high school and everything. Wasn't even planning on acting, decided to go to college, had even like finished orientation and everything. And her mom was planning on going to Romania to write a book for a year. And then um, Eliza and Sarah Michelle Gellar have the same agent. And the agent was like, hey, I have this role for you. I'd like for you to take a look at it and submit a video audition. So Eliza says, after reading the script, Dushku rushed to a local Claire's to purchase dark makeup and other appropriate accessories for the part so she could like look like Faith when she was giving the audition. When she began her work on the series, Dushku was still a minor. She was 17. She was actually the youngest other than Harmony to work on the show. Um, she had to receive emancipation to work the long hours and to be able to film at night and stuff, because as a child actor, you're only allowed to work so many hours and it makes it very hard, you know, for filming night scenes. Um, she later recalled with amusement, that the judge who handled her emancipation case was an avid fan of Buffy the Vampire Slayer and jokingly said that she would sign the emancipation order if she could get a signed photo from Dushku, which I thought was really cute. She got emancipated for the role? So she says, uh, we did the emancipation knowing that my mother was going to be out of the country and because I was ready to go out and be independent. She talks about how it wasn't like she divorced her parents. At that point, she had graduated high school already. She was just a young graduate. And so at that point, they just wanted her to be able to work on her own because she was a few months shy of being 18. And yeah, so she says, in fact, the sole reason for the emancipation was so that I could be a legal adult for work and especially the night shoots on Buffy because otherwise, if you're classed as a child, you can't really work past a certain hour. So she had a really good relationship with her parents. It was just a matter of, hey, you're old enough now to have your own job. You've graduated high school. You want to do this TV show? Fine, go ahead. You can do that. And so, yeah, it wasn't like there was any bad blood or anything. She says, for me, it was almost a little bit like therapy. When I first started playing Faith, I had just graduated high school. I was 17 years old. All of a sudden, I'm out of the house. I'm moving out to Los Angeles. I was actually enrolled in a university before I got Buffy, and I had to withdraw. High school was a hell in a lot of ways. It was so hard. I went to public school in Boston after having been an actress since I was 10 years old. So I had that element of just being different in an environment where any kind of difference you have makes you kind of an outcast and an automatic target. I was a bit of a facade but at the same time, it was my reality because just to survive, you kind of have to have the attitude. Nothing hurts me. You can't get through to me. I was kind of this really hard Boston chick that worked well for Faith and for the creation of that character. Joss really zoned into that and we worked with it. That's from Slayers and Vampires. 
So the title of Faith, Hope, and Trick is kind of really, it's really clever. It's kind of twofold. It refers to the three new characters introduced, Faith, Scott, Hope, and Mr. Trick, which I think is really cool. It's also a play on Corinthians 13, 13, and now abide faith, hope, and love these three, but the greatest of these is love. Based on this passage, the three theological virtues are listed as either faith, hope, and charity, or faith, hope, and love, which I thought is kind of clever. All right, since this is not like a, you know, an easy episode to jump into, I guess that this time is as good as any. So faith, hope, and trick the episode we've all been waiting for so you can finally talk about faith. It's oh so hard gosh. to like be, to like slightly allude to stuff that happens in season three, but then not even talk about like the main reason why we have season three. I'm like, season three yeah. is really good. You guys are going to really like it. It's really, uh, it's really deep. And there's just certain characters that it's like so much of the show is impacted by them and they really kind of progress certain characters arcs forward and stuff. Mm-hmm. And faith is one of those people. And so it's kind of really hard to talk about a lot of, specifically Buffy's character growth without Mm -hmm. mentioning Faith. And it's one of those things where it's like you look at Kendra and Kendra was only in what, four episodes, five episodes? Three. Three? Oh my gosh. Okay. Well, Kendra was only in three episodes and look how big of an impact she made. Like, mm-hmm. she completely turned the whole One Slayer thing over on its head. Like, she really challenged Buffy's way of thinking and living and all that. And she was only in there for three episodes. So it's yep. like, without spoiling anything, it's like, we now have someone else who is taking kind of the place of Kendra. So it's like, how much more of an impact do you think they're going to make? Okay. Outside the school, they already start out this episode being very normal. And I'm like, ah, whew. Especially after coming up, okay, last good episode. Let's move past last mm-hmm. episode, please it's and thank all you. Sunny, it's outside the school. They have this cute little moment where, like, Willow's like being like, "Wow, like I can walk off stage. I feel very powerful. Like I feel like great. I can have lunch offside campus." I do remember this feeling though. My senior year of high school, it was very fun to go off campus like <laughs> Tuesdays and Thursdays. You feel kind of like a grown up kid. I remember when I was, I was in a junior, and my friend was a senior and he would go off campus and then he'd bring me back Starbucks. And I remember being like, look at me. I have Starbucks. And my friend who's a senior went off campus and brought me back <laughs> Starbucks. <laughs> it's so funny how just like one year makes a huge difference when, uh-huh. difference when you're in high school. You're like, oh my gosh, I'm a senior now. Like it just feels so old compared to a junior. And now it's like, yep. well, 30 next year of 31 like and you just like want this like on. stupid amount of attention on yourself you come back and you like have like your like drink from like um i don't know in and out or something and you're like you shaking your keys it. everyone knows you can drive <laughs> <Shake your keys. laughs> flexing yeah, yeah. on everyone in the hallways so like exactly. i escaped for an hour <laughs> not even it's like 40 minutes yeah it's so stupid it's so sense dumb. of power it's all about power guys but it's also like there's such little amount of flexibility when you're in high school that the like how much you get excited over an off-campus lunch is so sad. <laughs> like this is all I have. Well, it's like any one little change that happens feels like a huge ginormous step because you've never had mm-hmm. that uh, responsibility or that privilege before. Versus now as an adult, like we're so used to it that it doesn't feel that big to us. But to a high schooler who's like never been allowed to just like leave school in the middle of the day without their parents coming and picking them up, it's probably a huge deal, you know? We didn't mention it the past two episodes, but Allison's haircut is really, really cute. And this is the first time we've seen her hair short. And I think it fits Willow so well. 
And apparently they didn't cut it for the role of Willow, but they cut it because Allison was in American Pie over the summer. And so she cut it for the role. But I think like it fits really well, especially with we see Willow a lot more confident this season than she has been in seasons past. No, I love her short hair and it fits Willow's character. And so she starts like freaking out because they're like, you know, Willow, she's a goody two shoes. So she's like, I don't want to go off campus. They drag her and then she's like, okay, I feel good now. And then they're all coupling up, which is cute. And then Asa's like, uncouple. <laughs> they all spread yeah. out so that Buffy doesn't feel like she's like fifth feeling. Which I really liked. We need to see moments like this after what happened in Deadman's party. Yes. We need to see them looking out for Buffy. We need to see them being like, all right, what would Buffy appreciate most? How can we make her feel welcome and comfortable? So I, I think this was much needed. Also, the whole joke about Buffy and cooking and Martha Stewart is hilarious now that Sarah Michelle Geller has her own food line and cookbook. Mm-hmm. And then they go over and talk to Buffy. Buffy is talking about how her and Joyce have to talk to Snyder um, and figure out what's going to happen with her coming back to school. Willow mentions that this boy named Scott Hope had a crush on her last year, but she wasn't ready because of, you know, angel and he's like a little cute he's like kind of like lingering around talking to people we've all seen this happen before where he's like i don't know should i say yeah. something you like kind of like looking over i know scott is a little cutie <laughs> he looks like a tiny miniature version of angel like even with the hair and the way he dresses and stuff but i think he's actually a really sweet kid no he is i honestly really like scott and i mean you know we'll see what happens with him but at least in this episode like he just was very sweet very patient with her I like that we're seeing more of Oz. I noticed that we had a lot more of Oz, like, and I just am like, oh, you're not just like a pop-in character anymore. Yeah, yeah. I'm waiting for them to pull up another werewolf storyline for him because all we had was phases. And so I feel like this would be the season to kind of explore that. Yep. And then Scott walks by and he's like, hi, Buffy. Just so sweet. And then Willow mentions something. She's like, oh, like, or you could do that thing with your mouth the boys like. She's like, oh, oh I didn't mean that that thing with your mouth. I meant that little half smile thing. And then she's like, you're supposed to stop me when I do that. <laughs> He's like, no, I like it when you do that. I really noticed that they gave Willow a ton of dialogue for this scene. I feel like Allison Hannigan basically is carrying all of the dialogue. And I was like, man, that would be intimidating as an actress to look at the page and being like, I have to monologue for most of this scene. And everyone has maybe like a line or two and that's it. Mm -hmm. It works though. It's interesting because Cordelia isn't really in this scene or in this episode very much. And the only time that she really speaks is to kind of catch the audience up on what's happened in the previous seasons or Yeah, episodes. that's true. Because she's supposed to be blunt. Yeah. I think it's a very clever way to have it work because Cordelia comes across, as you said, very blunt. And so you can give her very direct dialogue and not make it sound like you're trying to be like, and then this happened and this happened. Yeah. Like it kind of flows naturally with what's happening in the conversation. Um, okay. What did you guys think of Willow and talking to Buffy about Scott Hope? Do you think that it was done kindly or nicely? Or do you feel like she's kind of pushing Buffy a little bit? Well, this is not the conversation I have a grievance with. So I'm going to save my, okay. <laughs> my thoughts for another conversation when it comes regards to Scott. That's fine. No, I agree with Tabs. This scene, I feel like it was a healthy push. It yeah. was a healthy amount of, okay. I'm your friend. I want the best for you. And I think you should pursue this and try and put yourself out there. I saw really nothing wrong with the way that people were interacting in the scene. Uh, there are later ones that we will get to. But this one, yeah. I think, was very, it was very friendly. It was very sweet and good hearted. 
I think if this interaction was alone, then maybe I'd be like, hmm, that's pushing a little bit. But since there's later interactions, I think it makes this one yeah. like, not as bad. I think, and again, this is just the fault of the writing because we had Dead Ben's party happening right before. It's kind of like, okay, you think she's ready, but you don't actually know where she's at. Yeah. And that's my biggest thing is you guys haven't actually talked to Buffy yet or heard her out. So again, I think unfortunately that's not really going to happen. I think I'm going to have to just kind of pretend they had that moment and and move past it, you know? Sometimes you kind of have to fill in the blanks. If you see that they're at a good emotional spot, you assume that during that time things have been mended. Um, at least we're it, hoping. Though. I know we we want <laughs> yeah. it. Yes, I just I learned to read between the lines a lot with Buffy because sometimes we don't get things we want to see. And okay, I know I crap on Xander, but this interaction was really funny. I was like, so this was funny. so funny. He's like, hey, you want a date? I saw the half smile, you little slut. <laughs> I audibly <laughs> laugh when that was said because that's also just like that's a lot of how my friends would talk or like yeah. interact. And so it felt very. It just felt like a very like friendly thing like yeah. an actual friend thing to do be like oh you slut you smiled at him like it yeah. just like <laughs> it was one of those things where I was like this is the type of humor Xander you can actually talk about where it is like you know yeah. more quote-unquote sexual or whatever but it's not weird or gross like you're just like but also making it's a, a joke about your friend it's a clear joke like a smile obviously doesn't mean you're a slut so we all know and translate that this is a joke yes his other yes. stuff you're like do you actually think that though? You know, you say things and I'm like, I think you actually think yeah. that. It didn't feel like he was objectifying no. her. It was just, he was making fun of the fact that she's kind of oblivious to everything that's going on when it comes to how attractive she is to other people. I died at the hit when she like punched his arm mm-hmm. and he's like, ha, 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 ow. And he's like trying to play it off as if it didn't hurt, but he's still like <laughs> holding his shoulder over there. Like, okay, that actually hurts. <laughs> Oh, and then this little dialogue with Buffy where she's like, you know, I just want to do normal things like like shop and date and slay, like girly stuff. I'm like, yes, girl, all those things can be girly, you <laughs> feminist, you. I love that line. So iconic. And then we jump right over to the evening and then it's you know, the sketchy version of Bob's big boy <laughs> over here. <laughs> I was like, ew, why is this like little mascot thing out there? It's disgusting. There would be this yeah. like random like chain in Sunnydale that's like really sketchy because that's how Sunnydale is. Probably run by vampires and then they just have mm-hmm. random attendants there so vampires can grab them through the window. Oh, it's like drive through. Yeah, uh, exactly. It's, it's literally a blood drive. Yeah, it's literally a blood drive. Yeah, thank you. Just- no one freaking laughed at my joke. <laughs> I did. It took me a minute to get it. It was so sophisticated. I will say this guy, his name's Trick, Mr. Trick, right? Yeah, Mr. Trick. I love him. I think he's so funny. He's like, got to salute the death rate. (laughs) I know. He kind of reminds me of a, like, less dramatic spike. Yeah. Well, it's really funny because I'm like, well, it's episode three now. Time to introduce the villains. Because uh, in School Hard, which was episode three of season two, that's when Spike entered for the first time. And it's funny that you bring that up, Leah, simply because the actor who plays Mr. Trick – K. Todd Freeman. He was the front runner alongside James Marsters for Spike. And ultimately, James Marsters obviously got the role. Mm -hmm. And you can see that. He just has that charismatic feel that you could tell Joss was going for for the vampire. I think he would have made a really good Spike. I mean, obviously, James Marsters steals the show and did amazing. But I think that this guy is like... He does it. He's very interesting and very captivating. And I will say, I like the fact that we actually have... An antagonist who's a person of color. Like, I like yes. that we're adding a little bit of diversity. 
always wish there was more in the show. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I like it. It's like vampires don't have to be just white men. <laughs> And Mr. Trick is really interesting because he's a modern vampire. And we haven't, we saw that a little bit with Spike. I feel like he's the next incarnation of that. He's talking about computers. He's talking about drive through, like he's eating an attendant out of a drive through. He's riding around in a limousine. He orders takeout and eats the kid who delivers the pizza, you know? So I think that like he's trying to modernize how vampires do things, Mm. which I think is a really interesting place to go with their villains. Like he's kind of a visionary and I really, really like that. Yep. Um, so basically everyone remembers what happens with the drive through. He pulls the kid through the window. There's some funny lines he brings up. I think I've learned that when it comes to two different villains at the same time, usually one of them is the more cryptic, scary, like um, darker featured one. And then the other one is like the, the jokester and like the, the one that doesn't really take things seriously. And so I think that they yeah. really complement each other well. And I think I've seen those type of villains so much in television, and yet I still like eat it up. I'm like, yes, I love it. Well, one of the best things about this show is it's incredibly self-aware. And mm-hmm. I love that he says, I mean, admittedly, it's not a haven for the brothers, you know, strictly the Caucasian <laughs> persuasion here in the Dale. And I was dying because like at least the show recognizes that they have a problem with being diverse with their cast and having Mr. Trick say all that. And he's like, you know, you just got to stand up and salute that death rate (laughs) just cracks me up. Well, I think it was more of them just talking about society because I think that they did try to have diversity, but like their network wasn't allowing them to. So I think it's them being self-aware, like kind of breaking the fourth wall and television itself during that time. That's how I kind of viewed it rather than just Buffy. Because if you look at anything, literally anything at that time, anytime there was any color, it was a side character. Or if there was color represented, it was an all-black cast or like an all-Asian cast. It wasn't like a mix. Um, K. Todd Freeman, the actor who plays Mr. Trick, he was nominated for Broadway's 1993 Tony Award as Best Actor for the play, The Song of Jacob Zulu. He was on Broadway for the show Wicked. He played Mr. Dillamond or Dr. Dillamond. He was in a series of unfortunate events as the careless caretaker of the children. Do you guys remember that? He's the guy that coughs the entire time. Drove me nuts. It's been so long since I've seen that show. Okay. It's with um, Neil Patrick Harris. Oh, I haven't seen his his series. Okay, yeah, it's on Netflix, and he plays the children's caretaker on there. You'll, I recognized him the moment I saw him. I was like, there's Mr. Trick. <laughs> um, he was also in The Dark Knight as Polk, a police officer who helps evacuate the hospital after oh, Joker bombs it. that's where I remember him. Really? I've, I've seen those movies a lot. That's yeah, hilarious. He has posters of them in a room. <laughs> yeah, literally. That is true. <laughs> that's funny. And then we go to – this is my fun fact – this and surprise are my two favorite Buffy prophecy dreams. Really? I, lo- I love Interesting. them. Especially this one. I don't know. Like the tenderness of Angel, like the dancing, the moment, like the acting. I just, I don't know. I love it. Like I love that he's wearing like a white shirt and then he's like bleeding and then Sarah's like acting is just really great. Um, and just the foreshadowing of the rings. I think it's really, I don't know. I love it. It feels a lot like what happened in Surprise because I think Angel mm-hmm. doesn't wear white very much. And so he's mm-hmm. wearing white here just as he did there. And I think 
I think it is kind of supposed to kind of call you back to that moment with it that they had together. Well, it's also like a horror trope. So you know that somebody is going to have like a massive kill or be killed in a horrible way if they're dressed in white or light colors because that the is blood true. can shine through. <laughs> that is true. And it's yep. supposed to show innocence too because like there's that trope. It's like, oh, the virgin always survives. And so sometimes it's either to show that they're like the innocent character or that they're going to like die immediately. Um, and in this case – both. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but in the stream, it's really sweet. They're dancing with each other. Um, she says, I miss you. Or was it he that said, I miss you? Buffy says, I miss you. And then it cuts to the Scoobies minus Giles just sitting at the table, staring blankly at them. What do you guys think is the intentionality behind having the Scoobies there? Okay. No, I noted this because I was like, I have a feeling that the reason why they're sitting there is because Buffy felt that they were so passive about Angel's death. Hmm. Well, that's an interesting take. I hadn't thought of that before. What are you about you, Tabs? Well, I was about to say the same thing too. Only because when he's like bleeding out and she's like, oh God, Angel. And then he's like, go to hell. I did. And then none of them get up to help. None of them really say anything. They just kind of st- stand there and basically just watch. Yeah. I hadn't looked at it that way. I was kind of looking at it more from Buffy's perspective of feeling like they don't really even care about like what she's feeling, what she's going through. Like no one's really was invested in the relationship, wasn't invested in Mm -hmm. Angel and also just doesn't really care to know how much she's hurting. Like Buffy's literally standing there because I think about the last episode that we had it where, you know, it was in surprise in that um, that dream that she has. She's walking through the bronze. She's walking past all of her friends. And then she turns. She feels lonely. The bronze symbolizes her wanting a normal life and how she, she feels very alone. And she stops. She looks over and you see Angel and it's like the meeting together. And this one, they're together. They're in their happy place. They're dancing. And then the Scoobies are there, but they're also just not caring. So they're I think not that, dancing either. Yeah, they're not dancing. They're just mm-hmm. passive observers. And so, yeah, it's probably supposed to also symbolize Buffy still feeling stuck like she did in Anne. She can't move forward. Well, she feels guilty too because when she drops the ring so accidentally, guilt. he kind of looks at her and she's like, I had to. And then he picks it up and bleeds while holding it, which is such good symbolism. And then says, I loved you. Ugh. I just yeah. I love this I love this dream. It's so good. Well, and it's it's so interesting because in and they had a dream with her and him by the beach. Then they had a dream when she was at the school and she's talking about her friends there too. She says, I thought they'd be here. And he says, They are here, they're waiting for you, or something like that. And so I think again, this is supposed to symbolize now her friends are here, they're waiting for Buffy. And I think the idea is that the episode's trying to show us is that her friends are waiting for Buffy to get out of this funk so that she can come and join real life with them. I think that's what the episode's trying to tell us. That's <laughs> selfish. I it is selfish, but I think that's it's hinted to many times in the episode when they're talking about man, you know, you're boring Buffy or whatever. Stop, don't bring that up yet. Oh uh, no, we're not there yet. Yeah. Sorry, but I think that's what that they're trying to show us is that her friends are sitting there like, "Okay, Buffy, when are you going to be done mooning over or pining after Angel?" So, not that I agree with that, but yeah, anyway. Okay, so after that, I'm just kidding. After that dream, <laughs> Buffy wakes up. I, I've learned every time I, in my nose, every time Buffy has a dream, I always write, poor Buffy, because her dreams are just awful to her mentally. <laughs> They're so sad. Oh, gosh. And then one of the many times the Buffy and Angel theme plays, Buffy looks at the Clotter ring 
And then Joyce comes in. She's like, ready to face the beast. Oh, I love Joyce in this episode. Finally, we get an episode that does Joyce justice. She's like, good morning, sunshine. Ready to face the beast. I was like, heck yes, Joyce. Go She's be all, Mama like, Bear. excited. This is one of those times just like in uh, School Hard where you really see that piece of Joyce that is definitely from Buffy or the, like, yeah. that <laughs> Buffy gets where, from her. Yeah, where Buffy gets from her where she's just like, I think what my daughter's trying to say is yes. You're They're, like, yeah, it, Joyce. They are their best when they're both united against a common enemy. And in this one, the chosen enemy is Snyder. And I think, okay, guys, again, a whole entire season ago, was School Hard. School Hard was season two, episode three. Look at how far Joyce and Buffy have come from like since then. It's just, mm-hmm. it's kind of fun to watch, you know, get the hell away from my daughter and now, nah, 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 nah. I don't know. It's just kind of cool. Yep. Yep. And so in this conversation, we find out she has to have a recommendation letter. Anyone other than Giles who has to write it. She has to have an interview with our psychologist so that she just, she can prove that she's um sane in the head. Is an easy way of saying that rather than Snyder's way of saying it. Um, And then I'm just going to read to you what Buffy says in response to like having Snyder be overruled by the school. She's like, so let me get this straight. I'm really back in school because the school board overruled you. Wow. That's like having your whole ability to do this job called into question, which is true. She's right. Yeah. That's got to be embarrassing. Whoever did Snyder's makeup for this scene drove me nuts because his eyebrows, they drew them on extra long and extra thick, and the color that they used was too dark, and so they made him look even more like a punk than he normally is, and I don't know if it was intentional, but I was so distracted by his eyebrows the entire scene. Really? I didn't notice. Yeah, maybe it's because I was looking at it on my very nice big TV that has like high definition and I was like, whoa, some of this makeup has not aged well. Dang, but, Sarah yeah. just flexed on us. I wasn't trying to. Sorry, I realized this. I was <laughs> in my I was, like, really nice HD TV that's no, 50 I just, feet wide. Okay, <laughs> it's not. It's just my first time watching Buffy through on a nicer TV and I'm like, whoa, with some things and other things. I'm like, mm, no. Like everything is much clearer now. Like yes, going back to everything. the crappy version. <laughs> Well, like going, it was, I think it's, um, oh yeah, it's Lie to Me. Whoever did the makeup in Lie to Me, like Angel's face and Willow's face specifically in the bedroom scene. No, I agree with that one. Oh my gosh. It looks caked on. It doesn't look super great. Yeah. Well, especially like they really try to make Angel super um, pasty, pasty, (laughs) like a vamp. He looks like an actual vampire in that episode, which is really funny. Um, Yeah. And so as right before we close the scene in the office, the mayor calls. Interesting. Snyder um, looks terrified. Yeah. He's like, Oof. we move on to the library. And this scene is so funny because they walk in, they're talking about normal things. And then Will's like, oh, you know that that thing when um Giles is too English to be mad. And so he makes that like cluck, cluck noise in the middle of his throat. And then Giles in the background just pops up. They're like, hi, Giles. She's like, oh, uh, and they're long. <laughs> And then Giles like stutters because like Buffy's making passive aggressive comments by being like, oh, you know, you just jump right into business, not even saying hi. And he's like, um, well, I mean, of, of course, I like having you back. It goes without saying. Well, Giles asks her, he's like, hey, like super casually. I trust you remember the demon of Kathla. And it's interesting how he just doesn't even make eye contact. He's just casual about what he's doing. And you can tell Buffy is deflecting. She doesn't want to talk about it. And so yeah. she deflects by saying, Hey, 
you know, Giles, contain yourself. I'm back. You know, you don't have to just rush and say, hey, we're so glad you're back. But the camera is panned in very close to her face, allowing us to see every single emotion and movement. Um, And it's very clear. Sarah Michelle Gellar, just phenomenal with the face acting. And there's multiple times this episode where she's so nuanced in how she portrays the intensity and the depth of her emotion. I just, I really don't know how she does it. Yep. Oh, and then Giles talks about how he wants to keep a Catholic dormant. And so he needs information for the spell so he can get it correctly. Um, And then Willow just keeps piping in by being like, oh, a spell? Can I help? And then, I don't know. I understand that she's like new at this or whatever, but it's just like, girl, like you can always talk to him when Buffy's not here, but it's like he's asking questions. He's needing information. I think she just is wanting to feel like worthy of Giles and it kind of is desiring Giles' attention. Mm. And I think that she really wants his approval and what she's pursuing. Um, And I think, you know, just as much as not, probably not just as much, but I think that Giles is more than just a father figure to just Buffy. I do think that he is, you know, a bit of a father figure to Willow as well. Yeah. I definitely agree that Buffy or not Buffy Willow wants Giles' approval. I mean, Willow kind of aspires to be like Giles in some ways and just really uh, she is fascinated with his level of knowledge, his working in the occult. I don't know. I didn't read this scene as Willow was like Willow doesn't understand what Giles is trying to do. We know because we've seen the episode. So I didn't feel like Willow was necessarily trying to butt into it. But I feel like this is yet another scene where Giles is like, he says, these forces are not something to be played around with. And asks her what she's been up to. So I feel like it was more of like Willow felt guilty about that. I don't know that she necessarily was being a bad friend in like trying to make the attention on her, if that makes sense. Mm. And so Giles kind of like is like, hey, like you can help with the research, not the spell. So basically saying, hey, don't help with the spell in a nice way. Um, It's kind of like when like a student asks like to help with something, you're like, and you're like, I don't really want to get them something super important because they'll kind of mess it up. So here, you can organize these pencils. And then Buffy kind of goes, big fight. Angel got the pointy end of the sword. A Catholic sucked him into the other side of the world. And that's it. You can kind of tell that she's like, I don't really want to talk about it. I don't want to think about it too much. Otherwise, like, I'll give stuff away. Um, and, and Giles' then- questions are so clever. Like, he's asking mm. very pointed questions. And he's making it seem like he wants to know all these details because he has to get it right down for the spell. But he's trying to give her space to open up about it, which I just – I really, really love. No, Giles' episode is really awesome. And then Buffy's like, oh, I got to go take a makeup English exam. And then I forget what she said. What she say? She's like, oh, do they give me extra credit for speaking English? If I just speak it, am I going to get extra credit? And they're like, Buffy, that's not, that's not what an English class is. <laughs> poor Buffy. Oh, no, poor girl. I don't know how she passed it, to be honest. With a comment like that, I'd be like, girl, you're not passing that test. I think Buffy's smarter than she gives herself credit yeah, for. Yeah, no, for sure. And other people do too. I think she she tries to say that she's not, but I think she really is. Well, and I think also like with the impending uh, doom of her not coming back to school is a pretty big motivator to do well. Yeah, seriously. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then this next scene, I'm like, Willow, girly. Don't incriminate yourself so fast. She's like talking about how she knows all these like um, smells and these different things. And if you mix this with the virgin saliva and then she's like, uh, uh, Giles looks pretty concerned. Yeah. And he says, 
Willow, what have you been conjuring? Which I thought was really interesting because from what I can see of magic, you're not always conjuring something when you are doing magics, but the specific stuff that she's talking about sounds like conjuring type stuff. And I think it's interesting that he pinpoints that immediately. Well, rather than just saying like, what spells have you been doing? He goes straight to like deeper stuff. Yeah, which is a little concerning. And then they end the scene with the classic, are you mad at me? No, of course not. If I were, I'd be making strange clucking noise with my tongue. And I think Giles is not being 100% honest with her. I think that he's not happy with it. You could tell by the way like his jaw tightens and stuff. But I think he doesn't really know – like he recognizes he can't control Willow, you know? So – Well, and it's also like I think he came from a background where he was kind of in a very strict environment and it forced him to look into the occult. So I don't think he wants to do the same thing to Willow where he's like – super hard and strict on her and forces her to go deeper in. Yep. The song that is playing in the bronze is played by the band Darling Violetta. They're actually performing and they are playing the song Cure. And then later on, they play the song Blue Sun when they're talking with Faith. This shot is one of my all-time favorite transitions in the show, I think. And it's just brilliant. So it slides in from the side and so instead of, you know, just saying like, bam, we're in the bronze, it kind of cuts over, it paints across, and it opens up on the dancers on the bronze, but the dancer that is to the far right is Faith. And so as the camera pans over, you start to see tons and tons of other dancers in the room, and Faith and her dancing partner end up in the middle, but they do it in such a clever way because she's the first character you see, yet she's to the side. So even though your eye is instantly drawn to her, you think she's just another dancer or just another extra. But before you even realize she's a major character, she's already stood out and made an impression. So you remember her. So when Cordelia comes in and makes that remark about Faith, you kind of know who she's talking about because you saw her. And I love that because what it does is it incorporates you into the story. It makes you feel like you're an observer in the bronze. And also it's is a fantastic introduction to Faith showing that she's very memorable and she stands out. It's just, it's brilliant storytelling. They did that on purpose too and gave her bright pants so that we would notice her dancing Mm -hmm. because then when Cordy comes up and talks about how there's a, I don't really love the way that she talks about Faith in this scene, but she basically makes like passive comments about how she looks like slutty and like things like that on the dance floor. But in our brains, we already know who she's talking about. And it's such yep. a subtle way because they didn't even like pan in close to face face or like things like that. Like she's technically supposed to be a normal dancer in the situation, yet we know exactly who she's talking about. Yeah. But I also – I love the callback to season one where Giles tells Buffy to hone in and like yes. recognize the vampire. The outfits. We haven't seen Buffy – well, we haven't seen Buffy mm-hmm. do that since literally season one. So I like that – they're still being consistent with the fact of like, even though we don't see Buffy like quote unquote hone in and like recognize vampires, she still has that ability to kind of pick them out of a crowd. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And probably Faith too. Faith probably knew, you know? Yep. There's definitely a connection. There's actually a lot of connections to like the beginnings of both other seasons, like mm-hmm. um, School Hard and then uh, The Harvest, which is really interesting. Mm-hmm. I didn't even think about that. Um, and yeah. I got to be honest, guys, I'm not one of those people that easily gets cringed out by dancing in movies. I know th- there's like infamous dancing scenes in movies that or shows that people get so cringed out by that I'm like, meh, like in Scream 2, like that whole like like a boyfriend dancing scene apparently is like very cringed out and hated in the franchise. And I'm like, I thought it was kind of cute 
or like in um 10 things i hate about you like the whole like dancing on the table i'm like i like that scene but i will say i can't watch her dancing and him dancing in the scene it makes me <laughs> so uncomfortable <laughs> I just – I don't know. The way that she's dancing is so weird and the way he's dancing is really dorky and them dancing together, especially when they're walking away. Oh, like yeah. disco signs. I'm like, please stop. Please. It's it's not subtle. None of it is no. subtle. I think the director's notes were, hey, dance but stand out kind of thing. And it's also so chaotic. Like, it's so chaotic. It is. But there's also a lot of 70s dance moves in there. So it's like a blend yep. of both like yep. well, I would say modern, but it's like 2000, early 2000s, late 90s dancing with 70s. Yeah, it's, it is kind of cringe, but I think it's kind well, of supposed to be cringe. Well, I think that the point of it is, is the dude is supposed to be from that era. And so I think Faith being like, oh, what's going to attract him to me? I'm going to start doing what he's doing so she's gonna start she's just messing with him yeah yeah exactly yep um and then we have this cute little interaction where like scott comes over and he's like oh well willa told me that if i came tonight i'd bump into you and they like asked her to dance well he says a really interesting line he says i'm sorry i'm a bad liar it's not good for the soul and i think the episode's trying to show us that since buffy's not coming clean about what's bothering her with angel and about like what actually happened it's weighing her down. Yep. And so he's like, I'm just going to go, you know, stand by the dance floor. And you, if you decide you want to dance, then I'll be ready. Which is a very respectful, yeah, very respectful good thing to dude. do. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a bummer because I feel like Scott is a great guy and he – like would have been a great character, but they are not very subtle in how they move him into this. They're just kind of like, hey, this is Buffy's next love interest and shove mm-hmm. him at us. And then obviously with what happens at the end of the episode, we're like, well, this ain't going to last. It's very clearly a love triangle. And also I think it would have been cool if we'd seen Scott in the past two seasons and then have been like this guy that like hung around that we could tell how to crush on Buffy. I don't know. We're just not very attached to him. We know he's not going to last, you know? Mm-hmm. I know it's it's a bummer because he's a little sweetie, but I just I like the fact that he's like giving Buffy space, a space, but also just opportunity to jump at it without being too pushy. He's like, hey, I'm interested. If you want to, here's an opening. And if you decide to, that's OK. You know, and, and there's more situations later on in the episode, but I just thought like especially this scene where he's like, oh, I'm going to be by the dance floor. And if you decide you want to dance, then I'll be ready. If not. It's no harm, no foul, which is very sweet. Poor Scott. And then she's so sweet too, though. She's like, no, it's not you. It's really not you. Like, yeah. It's me. Yeah. He tries hard, man. Props to him for yeah. trying, though. I was like, dudes would have given up for less, really. No, really. Like, And he's he tried several, several times in this episode. I was like, dang, I'd go out with him if, if he was like that sweet though several times and I said no the first time. I'd give up for less if I was him. If I got yeah. shot down once, I'd be like, well, good enough for me. <laughs> <laughs> I love Oz's uh, bonus points for the word mosey. <laughs> True. Oh my gosh, I love him. And then we go outside and then we hear like banging and stuff. And here comes Faith. Did you guys see when they went outside and Willow's all like, that's not what making out sounds like unless I'm doing it wrong. So everyone's facing in the direction and Buffy walks over and Xander has his hand in his back pocket. And as soon as Buffy moves in front of him, he pulls out a stake out of his back pocket and hands it to Buffy without even looking at her, knowing automatically that she was going to need it to start slaying. So like he's carrying like weapons around his pockets just in case Buffy might need them. And I was like, that's actually kind of cool. Or just in case he needs them. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, either way. I mean, either, either way, way, I'd I'd be freaking staked up the wazoo if I lived yeah. in uh, like Sunnydale. <laughs> I'd I'd have steak. I'd always be wearing like some sort of cross on me, holy water, the whole works. Yep. Yeah, seriously. Yep. And then we see Faith kick butt and she stakes the vampire. It's like, thanks, Beak. Couldn't have done it without you. And then we have oh, this, this is so good. Awkward so iconic. Inside bronze scene. So I think Faith's introduction is absolutely iconic because you have her standing there with her back to the wall, face down, the vamp is over her. It's the very classic trope that Joss wrote Buffy to be a um, subversion of. We're introduced to Kendra's replacement, Faith the Vampire Slayer. It's very obvious that the writers are trying to show us how opposite Kendra and Faith are from each other. Kendra's traditional and rule-following. Faith is brash, exciting, and rule-breaking. Buffy falls somewhere in the middle of that spectrum, and the way they portray her when she first meets the other Slayers is really interesting. In What's My Line, Buffy's wearing baggy pants, a tank, rumpled flannel, and her hair is kind of half up with a grunge look. This is in contrast to Kendra's put-together look, but here, Buffy is extremely put-together. She's wearing like a dress with a cardigan. She's got like a little clip in her hair. It's a very classically feminine look. Look. And Faith is dressed very more like rock and roll. She's even borrowing Buffy steak, which kind of shows us how much Buffy's grown and how responsible she's supposed to be. I put that in quotations uh, versus Faith. She's a contrast to Faith. And it's interesting that Faith is also using her surroundings. I think this is to show that Faith is going to be the more extreme intuitive side of Buffy. So where you had Kendra as more rule following and Buffy's like, no, like you need to follow your emotions and stuff. I bet you Faith is going to be a much more emotional type slayer because she's going to be the other extreme. It's just, it's really clever how they're setting all of that up. I got to say it. I got to give a little props to um, Cordelia's character this episode. She is very patient with a lot of stuff that happens with Xander. And I feel like even the way she handles this situation where, you know, like they talking about how she like had this crazy story where she was like naked and there was this priest and blah, 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 blah. They went to jail. Um, And then she's like, oh, isn't it crazy how like slang always makes you horny and hungry and everyone looks at Buffy and she's like, "Uh, (laughs) well, sometimes I grab a non-fat yogurt. Um, but then like Cordy's like, oh, I get it. No, not the hearty thing. Yuck. And then goes on how she explains. And like you're saying, Sarah, like Cordy kind of is the person that kind of keeps us recapped on all the past stuff. Yes. Yeah. So she explains all the stuff that everyone's like, wait a minute. And so she talks about how like Kendra died after Buffy had died. So now there's faith and yada, yada, yada. And then yeah. for some reason, Xander cannot get off the topic of imagining Faith naked because she's a Xander powerful has a woman. For, yeah, uh-huh. for vampire slayers. It's so frustrating because I count three times, three different times in the episode, Xander either makes a remark about like Faith or like is just kind of inappropriate when he's like looking at her or just like there's just multiple times in the episode where you can tell he's kind of into faith or at least very much like mm-hmm. checking her Objectifying out. her. Yes. Yeah. And it's like, dude, not only are you in your in a relationship, but your girlfriend's right there. Like have some self-respect and it's so annoying because it's like literally at the beginning of the episode, they were literally like all coupley, but it's like the minute someone comes, his attention is taken. I just yeah. think he has a very specific fetish and it's really uncomfortable because it's it's he outs himself so much. I'm like, dude, come on. He just has no respect for Cordelia. I just I'm sorry, but it's like 
it's very apparent that he has no respect for their relationship because he just keeps doing things that are so hurtful and like in such confidence. I'm like, why? where is this confidence coming from? You think that like no one's going to say anything or that you're going to get away with it. But even she says she's like in front of everyone or like not – she could have said stuff in front of everyone, but she kind of like whispers to him and she's like, Xander, find a new theme, which she could have mm-hmm. been way more harsh about it. So I'm just like – I'm giving props to Cordy when it comes to that one. Some people hypothesize that Kakistos is the vamp that owns the crocodiles, which I think is super possible given how like Faith reacts to moments when she's telling the tale and how she feels she needs to prove herself because of her trauma, um, which I, I kind of like that headcanon. I figured that that was kind of implied. Because she talks yeah. about how that was her hardest kill. Well, I mean, Kakistos is not dead at this point, but it could be that she made up this tale to make herself feel better and be. to make herself feel like she was actually in charge and in control and stuff. Yeah. I think it could be implied even if it's not outright stated. And then she asked Buffy, what was your toughest kill? And then she flashbacks to Angel. Poor girl. Yes. Yeah, it, the three was the guys that came after her, and that's the day that she found out that Angel was a vampire, and they spent the night in her room and stuff. I thought that was so sweet that that's the one that she remembered about. Oh, I didn't even think about that one. I was just talking oh, about her talking flashback about becoming to too. Sorry, yeah. I completely jumped. No, you're fine, but I didn't even think about that. Yeah, yeah. When she talked about the three, the three happened in season one, episode mm-hmm. seven, in Angel, and that's the one that Angel re- uh, saved her from. He rescued her from the three, and then took her, and then she went back to her house, and that's where they first bonded. Which just shows that like he's never far from her mind because technically she didn't even kill the three. Darla did, but I just love that mm-hmm. that's the first one that pops in her head. She could have said Spike. She could have said like anything from season two, really. Multiple Ethan Rain episodes. <laughs> but yeah, that's funny how like in the back of her mind she's always thinking about Angel. I think that was the point yep, of it. He's here so much in this episode. Yep. And then we cut to the library, and I think this is a very valid question Leah brought up in the beginning because Giles is talking about how great the Watcher's retreat is and then how he wasn't invited. And I'm like, how is it that the one Watcher who actually has the Slayer this is not invited? Is stupid. None of it makes sense. Is this also the first time that we've discovered that there is a Watcher's Council? This is the first time it's mentioned in the show. Isn't that crazy? Oh, really? But also, I'm confused. What are the other Watchers doing? <laughs> like I, is this their job yeah. is this their hobby You're like right. like how is there so many of them but there's only supposed to be one girl so we know from kendra that she was sent as a little girl to be with her watcher in case that she was called because we know kendra was not a slayer for very long before we meet her so my guess is there's probably other potential little girls they have some other some way of figuring out that these girls are capable of becoming slayers. They probably send out watchers to them. The thing is that like Buffy's been pretty much the only slayer. So why wouldn't they invite like the one, I don't know. It's all just shoddy. It makes me think the the watchers don't actually care about the slayer. Yep. Oh my gosh. And then this is one of my favorite quotes of the whole episode. She's like, if I had known they came that young and handsome, I would have requested a transfer. And then she's like, raise your hand if you. And you see Nicholas Brendan's acting. He's like scratching his head, but like trying to raise his hand at the same time. He's so <laughs> He's like disgusted, but doesn't even want to acknowledge it. <laughs> and then Willow's look, and she just stares at Giles with like, hmm, nope, I'm not raising my hand at all. Oh my gosh, I died though. Like Nikki's acting, 
so good. I just like, even though I'm not the biggest fan of Xander, he does some really funny things. And Nicholas Brennan does such, he's great comedic timing. Like, I don't think he gets talked about enough about his comedic timing. He's a really brilliant actor. I really love like how he portrays Xander. Giles all flustered. Well, uh, leaping aside for a moment, my uh, youth <laughs> and beauty. <laughs> I laughed so hard at that line. I was like, Giles is so freaking funny. He's all flustered too. Like he's like, oh, youth and beauty. And you're like, what? I didn't think Giles would actually care about that stuff. Oh, and then Buffy has to reluctantly invite Faith for dinner and slaying. Um, and then dinner when and it- slaying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's like um. Netflix and chill. It's like their version yeah. of Netflix and chill. And then uh, when everyone leaves, Giles asks her more questions about Akathla. And she reluctantly at the end says, next time I kill Angel, I'll video it. And then storms off. Well, and I think Buffy's already kind of on edge because Willow is all like, hey, Faith, you can hang out with us. And Xander's yeah. like, yeah, you can tell us more stories. And Buffy's kind of like – hey, like I wanted my life back to be normal. Like you could tell she was kind of feeling like it was getting to that place and then Faith comes back in. So you Mm. can tell she's a little like, okay, I don't want you guys here. Yep. And then we go into the hallway of the school and then this is kind of a cute way of like recapping the school. I love when like sometimes shows do this where they have like a little dialogue that kind of like it's like, oh, little throwback. I don't know why it feels so comforting as like a viewer because you're like, you want to know that they remember stuff that has gone on the show. I don't know why that is. Yeah, I think it's because it makes them feel like real characters. When they talk about things that have happened in the past, you're like, oh, hey, it's like it really happened. Yeah, it's true. Like the characters remember that it happened. It's not just like an episode that they just kind of threw in there that's not important, you know? Um, And so they're kind of like walking over me like, oh, I got sucked up into like, you know, the ground up there. And then this is when this happened and yada, yada. Um. Which is kind of fun to like walk down memory lane and then Faith is just like, what the heck? Well, and I love that we're finding little bits and pieces about Faith as time is going on. Like she talks about how she dropped out of high school right yeah. here and, you know, kind of hints that she didn't really have friends. And then Faith kind of makes this passive aggressive comment that she's like, oh, what's wrong with Buffy? She seems like wound a bit tight, which is like, girly. You have no idea what she's gone through. Stop. Which, <laughs> although I understand though, because Faith has gone through a lot right now, but her emotional reaction to things is opposite of Buffy. Instead of kind mm-hmm. of like, yes. you know, yes. going inside her head trying to figure things out, but uh, Faith is very much like, all right, just not going to think about it. Just move on. Just, you know, don't think about it. Loosen up. Do whatever. And we can see that Buffy uh, – not Buffy. Faith still has a lot she's working through yep. throughout the episode. And so even though I hate this passive-aggressive comment, I really don't think that Faith is meaning it like that. I really think that in her mind, she's just kind of thinking of like, hey, I've been through a lot, but you know, I'm dealing with it great, even though she's not. Yep. And I think like, we'll dig more into that. I think it's just the situation where it's like, why do you have to mention that when later on you say, you don't know me, you don't know what I've been through. And it's like, okay, where's that energy in this moment? You have no idea what Buffy's gone through. But I mean, clearly she has other issues, but I'm like, girly, you have no idea what's going on. Stop. And to come to Willow's defense- I feel like Willow tries to start talking about what was happening with Angel and then Faith's all like, oh, water, and then runs off and gets it. So like, I don't think the Scoobies were just going to let her sit there and be like, oh, gosh, what's going on with Faith or with Buffy? Yeah. You know, I think they were actually going to say something. Yeah. I, my grievance was more with Faith in that moment, not necessarily like Willow and Xander. Um, that comes a little bit later. Um, and then this awkward interaction where it's like Cordelia's like, oh, maybe I should dress up as a slayer. And he's like – 
you know, oh, God, please don't let that be sarcasm. You're like, Sanders, stop, stop, stop. Gross. <laughs> it just makes me so sad because it's like Cordelia, she's being very kind, but she, it's like mm-hmm. so obvious she's just trying to get her boyfriend's attention. Yeah. Like, and she shouldn't feel like she has to fight for that. Xander's her boyfriend. He should want her. Yeah. I, so like how you feel about Faith and the vampire dancing in the bronze, I feel about Faith and Scott talking or Faith trying to flirt. Really? Eliza Dushku was very, very young. And so I feel like she's still a little green in this episode. And so some things come across as a little forced. But her over there like laughing and like touching his arm and all that stuff. I don't know. I'm like, well, I I just don't feel like it's realistic. (laughs) See, I actually – I disagree. I think it's supposed to come off as a little forced because I think it's supposed to be the fact that Faith herself is a very pushy like kind of person. And so I think it's a, supposed to come off as very opposite Buffy's flirting, which is very, like, kind of natural and very, like, you know, calm. And she's very, like, just kind of, like, to herself. Whereas, like, Faith is very in your face and very out there. And I think that it's kind of opposite of what he's looking for. And I, I think it's supposed to feel uncomfortable. And I think that would work for a different audience. But I think the fact that Scott is very not like that – I think is why it's uncomfortable. But if, if she was being that way with like Xander, who obviously wants it, then I think there'd be a lot more sparks going on. Yeah, I feel like Buffy and Scott would be kind of a – this sounds really mean. I don't mean it like horribly mean, but I feel like they'd be very a, a very bland couple because I feel like Scott is very sweet, but he's a little too normal. I feel like they, they both are just too normal of a couple and we don't want to see normal. Normal is boring mm-hmm. in Buffy the Vampire Slayer, you know? What? Don't say that. There might be people in the future that are <laughs> that are normal, normal and, and fun. <laughs> yeah. I'll hold you to that, Sarah. Mm, okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and then here's what we all want to be talking about. Then Willow's like, oh, maybe Faith and Scott could hit it off and then starts talking about it. And then poor Buff is like, well, I haven't even made up my my mind. She's like, I don't poor Buffy. And then they both give each other a look. And then Buffy's like kind of insecure about it. She's like, well, why was there a look? And then Willow's like, you really do find funny, Buffy. (sighs) See, this annoys me because Faith is saying this out of ignorance. Faith is saying it out of ignorance and out of her own personal, like, her own trauma. Whereas Willow is saying this knowing what Buffy has been through and her, the burden that she bears. Uh, it's just, it's so rude. No, Willow's doing this not knowing what Buffy's been through and not caring to ask. Like, that's what's happening and that's yeah. what's frustrating. Like, there's very clearly something, there's a reason Buffy left and they, they could have, I'll give them, grace and say they could have talked about it off screen but we know that that willow doesn't know the extent of it because she finds out at the end of this episode it's just uh it's just annoying and the fact that she said b is just like girly there's someone shiny and new and exciting in town and she's all like enamored by faith and so she's like using the jargon that she's saying and it's like willow this is your friend that at the very least had to kill her ex-boyfriend it was killing other people. That's a lot of pain in and of itself. Yeah, and I feel like Buffy's doing a pretty good job of trying to find the fun. I don't know what everybody's talking about here. She's yeah. going to the bronze. She's hanging out with them. She's getting back into the swing of things. What? How? Like everyone keeps talking about her being uptight in this episode, and I don't really feel like she really is compared to episodes past. So 
I don't know. I It felt a little jarring. I would still be comatose in bed if I had to kill Mag's boyfriend. I would be nowhere near trying to have a normal life. The fact that she's like wanting it and actively going out and her not being emotionally available enough or just not ready to date is totally okay. Just because somebody is not ready to date doesn't mean that their life isn't coming back to normal. I think the opposite is also true too. Just because you're looking for a normal life doesn't mean you have to date either. Like mm-hmm. just because you're ready for a normal life, that doesn't equal dating. Like you can be completely happy single. And so it's frustrating that everyone equates that. But I also understand why they do it because for the story purposes, they've often equated normal life with a dating with angels. So them talking about normal life, they're going to they're going to start talking about moving on to other people, you know? But for me, it's kind of like, I feel like we've been here and done that with this storyline with Scott because with Owen and never kill a boy on the first date, like Buffy came to the conclusion that, oh, I shouldn't date a guy who's normal because I don't want to put him into danger. So I don't understand why Scott would be any different, but yeah, I don't know. And then we go, okay, I didn't know what to name this place. This is like an old like car workplace. I don't even know. Oh, I'm so excited about this. I just named it the garage. The garage. Okay. So fun fact, guys, this hideout, it is the same filming location that was used for the Ghostbusters firehouse interior in Los Angeles. Isn't that cool? Yeah. Um, And then this whole interaction is funny because it's like a Kakisos is just so not interesting to me. I'm sorry. (laughs) He has like three lines. And then like every time they're together in a scene, I'm like, I'm just always paying attention to Trick because he's just really a lot more interesting to listen to and to look at. Um, Yeah. But they're having this whole interaction and then like he's just like, there's already a Slayer here. And you're like, okay. So this is just an information dialogue. I get it. Um. And then they're like, oh, maybe we should stay. Well, I love the misdirect at the very beginning of the episode because they're talking about the Slayer and you think it's Buffy and mm-hmm. then it's Faith. And then, you know, Mr. Trick over here, he's all like, rumor is this town already has another Slayer, which <laughs> makes two. I'm not really sure how that happened. <laughs> <laughs> which is You fair. think that'd be something he should be concerned about. And he's just like, oh, whatever. It's another Slayer. I'd be like, dude, if they're multiplying, it's time to get concerned. <laughs> Oh, my gosh. And then Kikisto and his, like, you know, and all of his angry glory is like, she gave me this. And then he's That's like, a pretty gnarly scar, though. I was like, dang, Faith. Oh, yeah. But I think it's one of those kind of saying, going back to what Sarah was saying about how, like, Mr. Trick isn't really scared about Slayers. I think it's one of those things where because Mr. Trick is a newer vampire, he doesn't really know, like, the validity of what being a vampire slayer is. Like, people like Spike and Angel knew that, like, vampire slayers were, like, kind of a threat and had actually faced off with a lot of them. So they were, like, very aware of their power. And it seems like the the hoof guy, whatever his name is, like, kind of seems like he's a little uh, detached from the world. So I think it's kind of like he didn't fear them because, you know, he didn't really have to face them a lot. Leah's like the goat guy. Yeah. Yeah. I, the, the, hooves, the dude with Kikistos, the hooves. toast, kissing toast. Well, and I think that Mr. Trick, I think he knows what Slayers are. I think he's aware of them, but he said it 
his main motivation in the first scene. He's talking about how he wants to be big picture guy. He thinks they can modernize. So he probably gets a sense of power from his feeling of like, I'm not for vengeance. That's for like the older vampires. I'm for modernizing, which means I'm going to last longer. He's all for looking for the biggest power that he can be. And then coming to Sunnydale, he's talking about how nobody really seems to care what you do here. And so he's probably thinking the Slayer, Buffy, is not very effective at her job if everybody in Sunnydale can kind of do whatever they want with no consequences. Um, And then they have this whole funny scene where he's like putting on a glove while he's like talking and then just like pulls the pizza guy in. so casual. I was like, why is he putting this ginormous glove on? And he just, (laughs) yeah. But it's like really inventive. It's really cool. It makes him really interesting as a character. You're like, oh, that's really funny. Because like he he goes in for like a – like a meal at a drive-thru yeah. and then his meal is not like the junk food. It's like the actual worker. And then this one, he's like, oh, food's here, guys. And it's a pizza delivery person. You're like, he's going to eat pizza? And then he just pulls in the person. Yep. Like these poor casualties, but they're really funny. He talks about how uh, they're running a computer search on all motels and hostels and stuff for faith. Again, showing that they're using new technology. And it's just kind of crazy to compare this with season one master because they have become so modernized to the point where they're actually even more scary now because now they're mm. using the tricks that Buffy and Giles and Willow and Xander all use against them. And I think that's kind of an interesting concept. Yeah. So there is a bit of, dis- of a discrepancy between Kakistos and the master. Um, we later find out from Giles that Kakistos is a really, really old demon, a really, really old vampire. And uh, so Joss Whedon said, Kakistos was old. That causes the clovedness with his hands. Remember the master? He looked like a bat, a lot like a bat with a fruit punch mouth. The idea is that the older they get, the more animalistic, but not necessarily the same animal. They devolve. That's my theory. So when people look at the master and Kakista and say, hey, they're both old, but they look kind of different. I think it's the idea that they all just start to look more animalistic and they all look like different types of animals and stuff. I do think there is a big question of why the master's bones stuck around and Kakisto's bones didn't stick around. I think it would have been kind of like really cool. Plot convenience. Yeah, no, totally. But I think it's kind of cool that Kakistos is uh, Faith's master. And so you kind of have the comparison there between both of them and like even Buffy uh, and her trauma and when she was bad and stuff. It's just kind of cool to see those comparisons and I didn't even think about the fact that like he could mirror what Faith's master would be like. That's really interesting. Mm-hmm. I mean, because there is like a, an emotional crutch when they're around too. They have like an emotional hold on them because they represent um, defeat to either one of them in different ways. Did you notice that Faith froze when Kakisto approaches her just like mm-hmm. Buffy froze with the master and he grabbed her by the throat and lifted her up? And mm. it's supposed to be very, very similar as Faith. This is Faith conquering her fear just like Buffy had to conquer her fear, which was the master. Nice. Good work, team. All right. So over at the house, this feels like an awkward like family reunion um, where it's like you're – it's catching up with like the the favorite cousin where you're sitting there being like, mom – don't forget about me. And I think it's hard because I understand Joyce in this situation because she's trying to like give Buffy pointers that she knows nothing about. And so and and it's coming from a, a mother perspective where she's like trying not to like have her child die. So don't blame her too much, even though it's like 
Buffy's not always focusing on the negative emotions, but also sometimes it's helpful because then she thinks about all the worst case scenarios that could also help her in survival. And whereas Joyce kind of says like focusing on negative emotions could kill her, which is an interesting idea. And I'm curious on what you guys think about that. Yeah, I think Joyce is at this point just grasping for straws and looking for anything that is going to help Buffy be more safe when she's slaying. I see her being kind of like, yeah, be positive thinking, like all this other stuff, because I think I think this is Joyce transitioning over to trying to be helpful, yes. Joyce. And I think it's also Joyce that's also kind of like, planning ahead troubleshooting of like, hmm, so if Buffy is a slayer, does that mean there's a time when Buffy can stop being a slayer? And so I think Joyce is looking at Faith and going, whoa, there's another slayer. That means that maybe Buffy doesn't have to do this highly dangerous job anymore. And so I think Joyce is being extra friendly with Faith because I think she wants Buffy to hand everything over to Faith and she wants Faith to like want to take it. Which I think is kind of a valid thing because I mean, even Buffy herself, when she saw Kendra kind of had that moment too of being like, ooh, maybe I don't have to be the Slayer if there is already one. So I think that it's completely valid for Joyce to think, hmm, maybe Buffy doesn't have to do this if someone else can and wants to. Thank you for bringing that up, Leah, because I was I was like going to talk about that. And I love the character development here because like Kendra being here wasn't that long ago and she was like wanting to give it up. And I think since her having to go through so much with Angel and Angelus and all that stuff that happened in season two, I think she realized like, yeah, like it's hard being a slayer, but she feels like she has to be and this is her job and this is who she is now. And so she's not even thinking about the fact that like there could be a possibility that Faith takes over. And I love that character development that we see here. Which I think is a good point because we've already seen the groundwork laid out with What's My Line Part 1 and 2 with Kendra. So we've already broached this topic. We know Buffy would kind of be open to it a little bit, but I think things are a little bit more different now too. I mean, Buffy even says, no, mom, I can't just stop. And I think with Kendra, I think there was a part of her that thought, oh, maybe I can just stop. And I think Buffy's realizing that because I'm the Slayer, I'm just always going to be drawn to places that I'm needed. And there's always going to be things like that that find me. Like She knows that from Anne. That's literally what she tried to do is run away and it kept finding her. So I think Buffy recognizes even if I try, it's not going to happen. Um. So this conversation in the kitchen, I think – I love that they put this, especially after last episode, because I think this is yes. needed. Yeah. And I, I can 1000% see and stand behind where Joyce is coming from. And I think that she handled it very like gently, um, but then also just being very unaware of a lot of what the Slayers have to go through. Um, and I think they both kind of understood each other. I think it was very sweet. I like how it concluded. I just – I forget that this kitchen scene happened. And I like that it's placed right after last episode. Yeah, I think it's important. And I don't think Joyce is in the wrong. I mean, her saying, oh, I hate this. I hate your life. Yeah. she She's not saying, ah, I hate who you are. She's yeah. saying, I hate that you were chosen for this. I hate that you won't have a chance to go to college. I hate that you might die. All very reasonable things. And Buffy mm-hmm. knows this. I think her, her saying, hey, let Faith slay and all this other stuff is a very, very good point to bring up, is very reasonable. And I do not fault Joyce at all for that. And I even like that Joyce is kind of like, hey, are you maybe jealous of Faith? Like she's kind of intuiting that like Buffy is not 100% happy with Faith there because she's a little bit jealous of her. And I think that 
Joyce does a really good job of just like questioning Buffy's motivations without being like, oh, well, everything you're feeling is invalid because you're jealous. You know, I think she's also kind of trying to walk through her with it. And I think it's good. Mm-hmm. And I like how there's a lot of callbacks in this episode to like a lot of previous monumental episodes. Yeah. And the yeah. way she says, I don't want you to die reminds me of Prophecy Girl when she's like, I'm 16 years old. I don't want to die. And I like that it's showing like that's how Buffy felt during that time. And like, Joyce, mm-hmm. now that she knows that Buffy is a slayer and she's new to that, she's having the same emotions about Buffy. And I love how that mm-hmm. mirrors each other. And then Buffy's like, I'm not going to die. I know how to do my job and I got help now. And they have just a very sweet moment together. I just love that scene. And then this alleyway conversation with Faith and Buffy. Here we There's go. a lot of tension here. There's a lot, yes. She's like, oh, you've been doing this the longest. She's a lot of passive-aggressive comments and she's like oh maybe too long and Buffy's like excuse me and then she brings Mm -hmm. up Angel and I'm like Faith I just and also like how'd you find out about Angel how'd you find out about that well I think at least how I interpret this is that Xander and Willow have probably mentioned him very briefly of just kind of like oh you know Buffy you know, used to be going out with someone probably named Angel, but, you know, she's having a hard time getting over it or like something along those lines. She clearly doesn't know details. And so I think it's one of those things where it's like, again, it's not okay, but it's also like, it really is coming from a place of ignorance on Faith's behalf. Like, I really just do think that she doesn't understand where Buffy's coming from. And Faith is kind of a little bit focused on her own pain right now. Yeah. I mean, I fault. I felt the Scoobies mostly for this conversation. I think Faith is only – and she says this. She's like, I'm just repeating what I've been told, what your friends have told me. And so the fact that they're not speaking to the nuance of the situation instead are like, Buffy should just get over this, it says more about, I think, the Scoobies than it does for Faith. And I mean, let's look at Buffy's dream sequence. They're all sitting there waiting for her to move on and she's not, you know? But I kind of viewed it as like if – that the Scoobies had told her what they knew, which is enough for Faith to be like, you know what? I'm not going to mention her dead ex-boyfriend who killed people and that she had to kill. That feels like I don't think she knows all of that, though. The way Why that it's phrased. No, I think the way that it phrased is very much like she was dating a guy and he died. Yeah, I don't think she knows all of the stuff. She just knows the guy's name is Angel, but she doesn't know anything else other than the fact that she loved him, she lost him, and now she needs to move on. I think she doesn't know the details. Well, and if she knew that Angel was a vampire, I think the conversation would have been very different. Yeah. Also, I think Faith is just projecting. Because what does Faith need to be doing in this episode? She needs to be moving on. She needs to be facing her fears. And so Faith saying this to Buffy is Faith repressing her own emotions and project or projecting her own emotions onto Buffy and just being like, Hey, you just need to move on. You know, come on, what's the big deal. And so I think that they're both dealing with their own trauma and their own issues and they're taking it out on each other in a way. I hope that's the case. I, I just kind of viewed it as like, she knew what was happening and she was being incredibly insensitive, but I hope that she doesn't know everything about the angel situation. I think if she had known he was a vampire, we would definitely would be hearing that. Yeah, that's true. Um, and then, oh my gosh, I will say that their pettiness when they get all angry at each other is so funny to <laughs> yeah. me. Why are you getting so strung up, B? Why are your lips still moving, F? 
<laughs> so snarky back. I'm like, yes, Buffy. I wanted to see them go at each other. I was like, I want to see two slayers fight because they're supposed to be more powerful than vampires. This should be good. Honestly, though, I'm all for like build up when it comes to these sort of things because it's like True. if they ever do fight – then it, there'll be a lot to back each other up emotionally. And so it's got to be such a good fight. So I'm okay with that whole like, oh, are they going to do it? They're not. And for like several episodes and then until it finally does happen. So I kind of like that they didn't in this moment. I think it would have been too soon. But like they definitely had enough ammo to like beat each other yeah. up. So one of the questions that's asked in this in this episode is, Buffy's finally accepted her calling, become a slayer in full – but now there's another Slayer, and she seems to be infringing on Buffy's territory. So question for you guys. Just because Buffy was first, do you think she should be taking seniority? Or No, I think it's a valid question to ask. Like, is there even a seniority when it comes to Slayers, or should it just be the person who's most able to lead or whoever is better? I think it's a valid yeah. question to ask. because. I saw this thing that someone talked about, and I thought it was really interesting. They were like, technically, Faith is the next one in succession now since Buffy's died. And in actuality, Buffy and Faith should never have met. Like, it should have been Buffy died, Kendra died, and now Faith is here without Buffy being there. Um, so until CPR was invented, there was only, you know, one Slayer at a time. So do you think that in a way Faith's birthright was stolen from her because of the fact that Buffy's kind of still around and Faith is now not the Slayer? I don't think so. I think that at least right now, Faith is still new. And mm -hmm. I think that therefore, even if it wasn't Buffy that she was falling underneath, she'd be following underneath a watcher. And so like Faith still kind of is in training in a lot of ways, whereas Buffy has you know, been a slayer now for like, what, year, years. two years? Yeah, this is going on her third year. And so she does have a sense of seniority over Faith and therefore I think kind of should be more of the lead, at least for right now, um, because, you know, Faith is still newer. And I think even if Buffy wasn't there, Faith would need to go through training. I think, hmm, I don't think it should be like the next person. If there's two people alive, the next person is supposed to be like, you know, the head slayer or whatever crap. I think that only really kind of works itself out if there's one slayer at a time. But I think since there's two and Buffy's alive, I don't think it's like, oh, the slayer line, since it goes through Faith, then she should be the main slayer. I think it's unfortunate that they're in the same place at the same time. And because of that, it's because of, you know, the logistics of her not having a slayer or having a watcher and yada, yada. Best case scenario, I think that they should be like at another spot in the world that needs help um, to kind of spread it out. I think it doesn't really make sense that she would be in Sunnydale, but obviously plot wise, it makes sense because she needs to like have a watcher and she doesn't have one. So therefore Giles is going to watch her until another slayer or another watcher comes. Um I think it gets messy that both of them are together because there's like a a clashing of um I don't know what the word would be. They have a different way that a different style that they slay and different ways that they do things and I think they clash in that. Right. I'm just talking about like if like there's a reason why we don't have two presidents. Like I don't know what that would be called, like a a push of power or whatever that phrase would be. Um so I think it doesn't really work to have two slayers like in the same place at the same time, especially if both of them are very different. And it, it's going to cause a lot of like rival 
rivalry like naturally only because one of them's more seasoned than the other. And then they have all their friends there and like their own watcher. And so it's interesting that they're here together at the same time. But I think logistically, I think it would not work out. Yeah. I think it's just really interesting to watch how Buffy's kind of like, yeah, I'm the Slayer. I'm here now. And then you have somebody that suddenly comes in. They're another Slayer. And it's funny. I mean, by the end of the episode, I feel like Faith and Buffy are in a good place, just like Buffy and Kendra were in um, What's My Line Part 2. But it's interesting in What's My Line Part one or at the beginning of part two, Buffy seems to be very hesitant about Kendra. And I think there's this sense for slayers of like, oh, I was told I was the only one or like, this is my job. This is my sacred duty. This is my calling. And you're kind of infringing on that. And so you kind of get that sense with Buffy. And I feel like it's completely understandable, but it's just, and it was an interesting perspective and way of looking at things. Like the full quote that the person said was, Buffy and Faith should never have met. One slayer dies, the next is called. That's how it works. When you think about it, Faith's birthright was stolen from her by an overachieving predecessor who refused to plunge and move on. Faith resents this. And I thought that was a really interesting take. I mean, coming from just Faith's point of view, it probably is a little jarring to be like, you're told you're the slayer, you're told you're this really great fighter and that no one else matches up to you. And then you're like, oh yeah, but there's one more, you know? And that's probably like a little hard to hear. So I don't know, thought it was an interesting take. And then this scene, they're both like fighting vamps. Buffy gets like strung up by a few of them, is like having a really rough time. And Faith is like beating one to a, you know, a bloody pulp, as Buffy would say. And is like saying like, you can't touch me. She's getting angry. She's very emotionally invested in this one vamp. She becomes unhinged, basically. Mm-hmm. We've seen this before in Buffy when Buffy feels really scared and like very like vulnerable. We've seen mm-hmm. her kind of take it out on vampires before and it's been Giles who's been like, hey, like you don't have to, you know, wham on them before you kill them. Just kind of get it over with. I know it's it's obviously more extreme with Faith, but I think that it's ultimately coming from a place of fear. She's scared and she feels you know, out of control. And so she likes feeling in control. Yeah. I think this is slightly different though, because yeah, Buffy was, you know, like Ted was angry and would go punch a vampire and stuff. But I think the difference is, is that Faith completely just lost her surroundings. She didn't know where she was. Like she completely zoned out. Her judgment became clouded by anger. She didn't hear Buffy yelling to her. She wasn't aware of what was going on. If if Buffy hadn't have taken out those vampires, Faith might have easily died by the other vampires taking her on without her realizing it. So, I mean, Buffy's fears are justified in the end when she talks to Giles about how um, she's like, she was unhinged. She put us in danger. So I think that like, yes, Buffy has been in situations before where she's needed to kind of burn off some steam, but I don't think Buffy's ever been like unsafe in how she has gone after vampires, even angry. Mm-hmm. And so after Buffy kind of has to fight off everyone, she walks over and is like, like, maybe you like it too much, which I think is is the wrong phrasing of it. But I can see how from her perspective, you're like, girly. And then she's like, the job is to slay demons, not beat them to a bloody pulp while their friends corner me. And then Faith is like, I thought you said you could handle yourself and then walks away. Ooh, such an interesting That's scene. so gaslighting. It is. Yeah. It is. Yeah. And then Buffy's trying to talk to Giles about it. Giles is kind of playing it off. And to be fair, he wasn't there. 
So it's like, I can't fault him too much for this, but it's also like, why do people still not take Buffy seriously sometimes? And I don't think he, I don't think he was like completely brushing her off. I feel like he was just trying to offer a different perspective. Like he's like, Hey, maybe you guys just slay differently. Maybe this is different. And she's like, no, she is unhinged. And he's like, okay, well, I'll call and find out where her watcher is. Like he actually listens to her, even though he's like, ah, well, have you thought about this perspective? So I felt like it was a little different. And then Kissing Toast, I mean, Kakis Toast, we find out means <laughs> uh, the worst of the worst or that we find out is an actual old vamp that he has learned about, which is very convenient. They find out they're like, oh, like maybe this is coincidence that Kakis Toast is here. And then they're like, maybe they're connected somehow. And then we scan into the hallway where Buffy's like, okay. I'm on my mission. It's like one of those like dun 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 dun, dun and then she bumps her. It right felt like surprise or no innocence where she was yep. gonna go tackle uh-huh. Miss Calendar. That's the vibes I was getting, and then it was like Scott. Yeah. I was like, what is happening Genius. here? Genius <laughs> editing. And then they have this interaction where like Scott's like, you can tell he's in a very vulnerable state where he's like kind of like such a good guy. I know. He's having his like second like stitch effort and trying to like talk to her. He invites her to go to coffee, which is really interesting because Buffy was frustrated that Angel, like she just wanted to go to coffee with Angel and he wasn't asking her. So it's the very opposite of Angel where Buffy did all the pursuing of Angel in the first few episodes of season two and this one, it's Scott pursuing Buffy. And so I think Buffy's not like quite sure what to do with it. And it's a huge contrast from last season when she was like, dang it, why isn't Angel asking me out? I just want to go out for coffee, you know? So I think they're supposed to like show the contrast between the two relationships. And this isn't really a relationship, but whatever. I like the fact that the Clotta ring can represent different things because for Buffy and Angel, it was like a form of love and it was a form of like, I have you close to my heart, that sort of thing. And then for this one, it's very sweet because he's like, oh, I talked to like the jeweler and he says it represents friendship. And he's like, and that's what I want because there's two sides to it. Um, What do you think is just such a, a unique way of representing different types of relationships and what Buffy is needing at the time. And I think the fact that he is like, I want friendship with you and here's the Clotta ring. Yes, it triggers her, but I think it's a really cool way of using this piece of jewelry to represent different sorts of relationships and emotional status that Buffy is in. Yeah. And I forgot to mention too, back in the dream sequence, when Angel, they show his hand picking up the Clotta ring, he's wearing his ring Mm -hmm. and the heart is on his right hand facing his heart, yeah. which means he's in a relationship, mm-hmm. which I think, again, is supposed to just show Buffy's guilt. She's like, man, she feels like she's being disloyal to Angel if she pursues something with Scott, even though Angel's not here anymore. Yep. And I was going to say, like, this whole scene where she drops it mirrors it because in her mind, she's like, that means mm-hmm. I'm moving on. And so it makes sense yep. because in the dream, Angel's like, like, oh, she he, he, look, he looks at her very like, hurt and like betrayed and she says like I had to and so I think it just mirrors this and makes the dream kind of be like a full circle because you're like oh she's talking about moving on in the dream yeah and it makes a lot more sense because he's sitting here being like are you forgetting about me are you forgetting that you killed me are you forgetting that like you're hurting me and so like him holding the ring and it crushing and like bleeding out it's just 
Oh. Well, this is Buffy's fear. Mm-hmm. She's afraid of Scott replacing Angel. She's afraid of Faith replacing her and her life. And this is Buffy struggling to find a new normal. And I think this is also the show trying to tell us that life is not going to be normal like it was before. I think Buffy keeps wanting things to go back to the way they were in season two and one. And I think she needs to recognize that nobody in, in uh, Dead Men's Party, she had to recognize that nobody's in the same place. They've all moved on. And in this one, she's trying to put herself in a new normal. And I think she needs to realize that she's not the same person. She's different. And she needs to find a new normal. Yep. And then she drops in and says, I can't. I can't do this. And poor Scott. Oh, I he, feel so bad. He says it in a very sweet way, though. He's like, okay, I get the message. And just walks away. Respectful. But I... I also love how like you see Giles walking up and seeing it and like I just love how gentle he is with her in this whole episode. Like he's slowly getting his information but he's not forcing her. Like he can tell that she needs to talk about it but it's just he's just so kind about it. Sarah Michelle Gellar's face is absolutely heartbreaking in this moment. Just she looks like she's about ready to panic and the the utter agony and anguish in her eyes. It's almost like a wound that has just been ripped open again. And I feel so much for her. And I think this is Giles's continued confirmation that something isn't right, that she's repressing. And I think it's so interesting that Giles is privy to these little moments that the rest of the Scoobies aren't. And so while they're being harsh and being like, man, Buffy, you need to just get over it and stuff. While Giles is bringing up the Akatha thing to Buffy, he's not pushing more than what she's comfortable with. And he's allowing her the space to talk about it whenever she's ready and to talk about it however much she wants to versus the Scoobies aren't even addressing it anymore. It's just to get over it. Um, And then in that conversation with Giles, he tells her that Face Watcher is dead, which is news to everyone (laughs) as viewers, which kind of makes sense because you're like, how is she just casually here? It makes a lot more sense that her watcher's not around. Yeah. Well, it makes sense if she has some issues Mm -hmm. that maybe she's seen some stuff. Yep. Which leads us to her dinky hotel room. Poor girl has to live there. Um, She's talking to like the landlord dude and he's talking about how her money is late. Um, And then she asks about Kikistos. She's like, you don't know anything about Kikistos. Starts – and Eliza's – acting and this is so good too her her eyes when she so talks good. about Kikisto, she has a panic in her too and so she starts packing whereas like Buffy I feel like has to like kind of really think about it and like meld on it a little bit more we kind of see and I like how both these scenes are right after each other because both of them are very triggered in very different ways mm-hmm. and Buffy's like okay mm-hmm. I gotta do what I have to do and Faith is like I'm gonna run yeah but who was running the episode before Buffy so I think again there's like the very clear comparison between the two of them and so yeah. that's why Buffy is the perfect person to talk to Faith in a situation she knows exactly what she's thinking and feeling yep but then you also see the hard exterior on Faith because you assume that there's really no one in her life. But Buffy has people around her, friends, and who can be there for her. And so therefore she isn't as hard on the outside as Faith is at this point. But I mean, even like we find out even just a smidget of what has happened to her watcher right now. And it's like the pain in Faith's eyes when she's just like, there's not a word for what they did to my watcher. It's so obvious, like, Faith has really been through it. It's just really interesting. The dialogue that is being said in the scene is very similar to the conversation between Willow and Buffy in Dead Men's Party. You have 
What was it you said about my problem got a deal and move on? Well, we have the moving on part right here. What about the dealing? Is that just something you're going to dump on me? And Willow's whole thing was, Buffy, you didn't you didn't call me. You didn't you just left me and I didn't have my friend. And then Buffy says to Willow, you don't know what I've been going through. And in this, Faith says, you don't know me. You don't know what I've been through. I'll take care of this. And so I think they're showing Buffy and Faith dealing with a situation very similarly, but there's also still like a slight difference there because both are different people, Mm -hmm. you know? Yep. And she talks about, oh gosh, the way she delivers his line, she's like, there's no words for what he did to her. And the fact that she had Mm -hmm. to witness that, I, poor baby. I'm like, oh, this poor girl. I just, this scene is so eerie to me. I'm like, ew, I don't like looking at like her looking through the people and his eyes are like bulging out. And then he's just holding him. Ew, I, I hate it. Props to that actor. Does job a little too well. No, really. I'm like, you're really dead. I hate looking at you. You're really dead. I was like, no, you're not even acting anymore. You're dead, dead. Um, Buffy's like, we got to run now. Like, this is okay to run now. They're here. Well, Faith goes into complete meltdown mm-hmm. panic mode. Like, she just – and it's it's just – Eliza Dushku has to play so many different emotions in this episode. She's playing this false bravado that Faith has. And then to see her vulnerability, like, her true vulnerability is just really, really jarring. But I like how Buffy doesn't hold Faith's freezing up against her because she understands it and she knows it. She's just very much like, like okay, Faith, get up, go. Like, and is pushing her through and – We never really see a moment where she's like, Faith, pull it together. Like, she's just kind of like, I understand. Well, and she says, Faith, first rule of slaying, don't die. You did the right thing. And I thought this Mm -hmm. was so sweet. And it reminds me a lot of what she said to Cordelia in Becoming Part 2. She said, you did the right thing when you ran. And I love that. I love that Buffy doesn't hold people's fear of dying against them. And I think that's just incredibly sweet of Buffy because here's someone who's very strong who it'd be so easy for her to be like, gosh, why are you guys scared? Bunch of pansies, you know, it's easy from her for her in a place of privilege of strength and power to say that to someone who's weaker, but for her to recognize that there's a very real vulnerability and fear there when you don't have that strength and to like not belittle them for it, I think is just incredibly big of Buffy. Well, I also kind of view it in a similar way of like, let's say someone falls into like a a waterfall or something, a current that's taking them away, and your response as somebody who's watching is I could jump in after them and risk my own life, but try to help save them, which is not guaranteed that they could survive or I could survive, or I'm still valid and not doing anything because like, I don't know what I'm doing. And so I think her having validity and sitting there and being like, you know what? Running is a total reasonable response in this situation. Like if you tried to fight them, you could have died. And yes, it's admirable that you could try, but like same thing with like trying to save somebody else. It's like sometimes it's idiotic and sometimes it's heroic and the odds of you coming out a hero are very slim. So it's okay if you don't do anything because it's not your fault. Yeah. Which is really hard because then you have survival's guilt or you have like just a spectator guilt where you're just sitting there and you're like, I watched it happen Mm -hmm. and I didn't do anything. But it's like you have to be wise in situations. It's like if I went and jumped into that whirlpool, I probably wouldn't be able to make it out. And even though it's sad and you have to sit there and watch that happen, it's like – or running away. You have the guilt of being like, oh, I didn't help her. I just sat there and I watched. But it's like, but you would die if you try to do anything. 
And I mean, that's the same guilt that Buffy is feeling too. She's like, not only did I kill Angel, but like I didn't stop it before he turned back into Angel. I didn't this or whatever it Mm -hmm. is Buffy has that guilt for. So she she's empathizing with Faith in this moment, you know. But the difference is Faith is able to push through and work through it because she opened up and had Buffy there to help Mm -hmm. her. And I think that's what Buffy clues into by the end of the episode. But I just love that Buffy, someone who always chooses to fight, sits there and gives validation for people who choose not to because both are valid. Yeah, right? And I mean, choosing not to fight for the right reasons. Because she gets on people who fight and have the power. Like Whistler, she's like, hello. Like, if you have all this knowledge, why aren't you doing anything? I'm really Mm -hmm. tired of doing it all by myself. But recognizing when someone's not in a position to do that, she doesn't hold that against them. Um, And then they realize that they're in his place, which is a new type of horror. And then all the vamps come rushing in. I think this is the most shoehorned part of the episode. I was like, oh, they lured them there, did they? Like, I don't feel like they did it all. But I mean, it's like (laughs) in surprise when the televisions fall down and like you have that huge gaping hole that Angel and Buffy escapes you. I was like, dang. But you know, whatever. We don't care. So Buffy immediately just like jumps into action. Faith freezes. Buffy throws her the weapon, says, don't die. Kakisto has Faith by the throat. It's the whole freeze thing, just like we talked about with Buffy and the master. Buffy starts wailing on him, and she stakes him two separate times, and the stake does absolutely nothing. That would be absolutely terrifying. Mm -hmm. Okay, and then Mr. Trick totally (laughs) gave me spike vibes right here. He's like talking to the other vampire, and he's like, if we don't do something, the master could get killed. Well, our prayers are with him. <laughs> I literally audibly laughed. That's This is one of those things where I'm like, he has spike energy where he's just like, oh, well. <laughs> when he calls him the master, it literally, there is a parallel between Kakistos mm-hmm. and the master. It's just really, really cool. So, and then Mr. Trick's just walking away and he's like, yeah, these vengeance crusades are out of style. And he's like chit-chatting away as he like walks away with the girl. I was like, what in the world? (laughs) So different from what was it, Caleb, who's willing to be the vessel and give his life for the master. Okay. And then this scene, I've always been like, "Uh," I'm like, why does it have to be this big of a stake? And with her like little force, she goes, eh. And then goes straight through. She's a slayer, Tabby. You forget that she's a slayer. Come on, y'all. I think it's it's okay to be like unrealistic with certain things, but like this one, it was like at least make it so that like you have to like jump and throw it in, or like stick it on the floor and then jump from the ceiling, and then so that it actually plunges through him. But it's like a eh. oh, it went straight through him. I kind of like that it took both Buffy and um, Faith to kill him because it was like in the end, Faith needed help. Just like how Buffy needed help to kill the master. Yeah, I don't know. I I think it's just a combination of it being like poor CGI. And then also you could tell the the beam is clearly styrofoam. It's not very heavy I know. stuff. So yeah. I mean, it's just nitpicky stuff. But I, I, I think it's admirable that Faith gets back up, picks up the beam and kills him herself. I think that speaks a lot to Faith's character. Mm-hmm. And then they both stand there and they're like, you hungry? Starved. Then they walk away together. At least they're hungry after. I love that moment. <laughs> then we go into the library. Assuming it's the next day, they tell us that Faith is going to stay until the next Watcher comes. So I guess we'll find out who the next Watcher will be or if it'll just be Giles until the end of time. But I highly doubt that the Watcher Council would just be like, all right, the guy that we don't even like is going to watch both slayers. Right. Exactly. They're like, if they didn't trust him to come to the Watcher's Council with them or to the their retreat, they're not going to be like, well, you can take care of both our moneymakers. Literally. 
unless they just don't care and they just get paid just to sit up there and like make decisions and make Giles' life more miserable, which honestly could be what they're doing. I hope that they elaborate a little bit more on the Watches Council. I feel like they're like this giant mystery. Yep. And then Buffy, in her own free will, decides to tell Giles everything that happened. And her face and just like, I feel like the way she says this is her kind of like having more of a peace about it. The way she says it is her kind of coming to terms about it. Um, And I think that this needed to happen before she talked to Scott. Otherwise, I feel like I wouldn't really believe that she really kind of wanted to give Scott a chance. But I like that we had this beforehand. Angel was cured. I'm sorry. When I killed him, Angel was cured. Your spell worked at the last minute, Will. I was about to take him out and um, something went through him. And he was Angel again. He, he didn't remember anything that he'd done. It just helped me. Um, but it, it was, it was too late and I, I had to. So I, I told him that I loved him. And I kissed him. And I killed him. I don't know if that helps with your spell or not, Giles. Uh, yes, I, I believe it will. I'm sorry. It's okay. I've been holding on to that for so long. It felt good to get it out. I'll see you guys later. Ah, uh, that was the moment that we needed. Just with everybody there, with everyone saying I'm sorry to Buffy and listening to her and hearing her out, but I guess we'll take this moment. But I just it's beautiful too. I, I think it's beautiful, but it's also like she got to say it on her own terms when she was ready, yeah. when she felt comfortable. Yep. And I think it's beautiful. I think the way that it's done is gorgeous. And I, I really think that it was it needed to be an intimate moment. What a good dad. What do you guys think about Willow's comment after that? So I see it as good intentioned. I think Willow is trying to be a good friend here. You can tell the way that she immediately just goes, Giles, I don't, I know you don't like me playing with mystical forces, but I can really help. I think in this moment, Willow's a doer when she feels uncomfortable, when she feels like there's Mm. pain and there's stuff going on, she wants to do something. And so I think she sees this as a way to help. And I think I think Willow feels a little guilty too because she changed Angel. She like the spell worked, but also because I think, well, maybe I'm projecting here, but I hope Willow feels a little guilty for pressuring Buffy when Buffy's clearly been going on with this stuff. And so I think in order to kind of make herself feel better, but also to help her friend, I think she wants to help with the spell so that she that doesn't happen to her again. So I think Willow is good intentioned, but it also is hard because you're like, it does feel kind of selfishly motivated too because she's been wanting to do this spell. So, mm. I think when we talked about it last episode when I brought it up in the spoiler, I think I saw it in a different way and then re-watching this episode and then I forgot that she had said I'm sorry. And so I think the fact that she said I'm sorry helped a little bit because watching this now, I'm like, you know what? Like I think it was her trying to help. Um, 
But I think how I viewed it beforehand was like her just like listening, not saying anything. And then afterwards, just kind of reverting back to being like, oh, I want to help with this bill. So I think I'm a little bit more gracious in this scene watching it now because I think I think she is trying to help. I don't think it's as selfishly minded as I had viewed it beforehand. She also didn't try to push it either. Like you see her watch Giles after he says there yeah. is no spell and she has that look on her face like, oh. And then also this look of happiness that like, yay, my friend has finally confided with me. I now know where she's at. Like, I think it ended up being better than how we anticipated it being. And then Buffy waits for Scott coming out of his class and I like that she's the one that kind of comes back to him and tells him that like she wants mm-hmm. to hang out with him. It's very sweet. She's ready. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love what Buffy says. She goes, and I'm capable of big fun, even though there's no earthly way you could possibly know that about me. Wow. If I knew I was going to go on this long, I would have brought some water. I'm <laughs> like, I'm using that. That's hilarious. Oh my gosh. And she's like, if you like want to hang out with me or whatever. And he's and he's like, I don't know, Buffy. I'm really going to have to think about this. Walks away. Okay. I've thought about it. When do you want to go? <laughs> I love that. I have one thing I have to do tonight, then I'm good. Yep. And it's dark. It's haunted. We're back in the the mansion, the place where it happened. Christoph Beck's goodbye plays. Mm -hmm. And the theme is gorgeous. It's like this haunting melody. It sounds like wind. She tells him goodbye. The theme comes to its conclusion. And Buffy walks away, prepared to move on with her life, and we have a close-up of the ring as the screen slowly fades to black, and that's it. That's the end of the episode. Angel's really gone. There's nothing to bring you <laughs> and then the movie, And then the movie Terminator comes on, and <laughs> guys, this- <laughs> guys, this is beautiful. Buffy's moving on, finding closure. Oh, crap. Joss Whedon is in charge of this show. <laughs> yep. Oh, and then wait, the heavens open and gift us an angel, a fallen <laughs> a angel. angel. <laughs> yeah. I, why is he falling out of hell? I want to know. Well, why is he also <laughs> falling from the sky? I feel like it would have oh been kind goodness. of cooler if it was like you saw him coming in a scene all like muddy as if it was like he crawled from the little ground. But it's like, why are they like spitting him out from heaven? Like, isn't he from hell? Doesn't make any sense. Why is he naked? I have so many questions. <laughs> yeah. He does look very traumatized though. And I'm like, great, now Angel has issues and trauma he has to work through. Okay, so when I was looking up stuff, I have to tell you guys about this. I was dying. So somebody wrote in their comments, oh, yeah, I'm so excited. I'll take a naked David Boreanaz any day. And they said, yeah, Boreanaz booty. And they're like, wait, Boreanaz? (laughs) Oh, my God. Instead of (laughs) Boreanaz. No, we got it, Sarah. <laughs> so the full nudity belongs to David Boreanaz without the use of a body double. While nudity is obviously implied in previous episodes, most notably Surprise and Innocence, in season two where he loses his soul after he and Buffy have sex, it is unclear whether he was nude under the covers in season two or in a flesh tone thong. This is on IMDb. I'm not just saying this. So it's like, I've done extensive research. I have done extensive <laughs> research on, yeah, Boreanaz. <laughs> um, Howard, given his antics for walking around set completely nude to get a rise out of his co-stars in between takes, <laughs> very highly likely he was in fact fully nude for every storyline that called for it. Here for this episode, the nudity belonged to David solely and not a body double. Also, it is... A well-known fact that Allison Hannigan and Sarah Michelle Gellar snuck onto set while David was filming this scene. What? Gee, I wonder why. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) That's funny. 
Yeah, it is pretty funny. I mean, he's also like extremely sweaty too. So they like greased him down. They were like, okay, David, get naked. Now fly through the air. (laughs) And land in a sexy way. (laughs) He's like, how do I do that? Yeah, exactly. And make sure everything is covered. (laughs) Oh my gosh. But man, this was a packed episode. I like just having faith in it, having Buffy move past her trauma would have been pretty big. I mean, the fact that Buffy's even moving on to a new relationship, but then bam, Angel is back. Like that is huge. Really fast. Like epic. There's a few episodes in Buffy where I refer to the episode where everything happens. And this is one of those. Yes. It's chaotic. I'm super excited to hear Liz's thoughts because she thought that Angel was going to be coming back mm-hmm. at the end of the season. So I kind of want to know her reaction no, nope. about it. Episode three. Yeah, episode three. Do you guys remember the first time you saw this episode? Because I legitimately thought the episode ended after they faded out after the ring. And I was like so sad. And I remember like then it comes back up and you see the ring start to move again. And I was like, oh, no, no, it's just going to be back. I was so excited. I I promise you, I don't remember many like first viewings of Buffy because I've seen it so many times. I know it's very sad. I feel like I was privileged even though I didn't watch the show when it aired. I watched it on Netflix and I didn't know about Angel coming back. I didn't know any spoilers. And so seeing the ring and everything was just like, oh my gosh, he's back. Had no clue. But All right, guys, that is the end of Faith, Hope, and Trick. Come back next week for our spoiler section, which I promise you is going to be fantastic and jam-packed with lots of good stuff. If you guys enjoyed this, please subscribe and leave a review for us. That would greatly help us out. You guys can also follow us on Instagram at Becoming Buffy Podcast. You can find us on TikTok, Tumblr, or you can email us at becomingbuffypodcast at gmail.com. We want to hear from you guys. What was your thoughts of Faith when you saw her for the first time? What about Scott Hope? What about Mr. Trick? Did you guys know Angel was going to come back? We want to know. And as always, guys, thanks for listening and we will see you next week.